You're listening to the Queer Yid Podcast, where we share the stories of LGBTQ Jews from religious backgrounds. My name is Hannah Peterson, and today I'm speaking with Liana Jelen Tapnak, an American Sign Language interpreter, Soferit, and native Yiddish speaker, who lives in Manhattan together with her wife. In today's show, Liana and I speak about the process of finding yourself and of learning to love all the pieces of our identities, queer, Jewish, and otherwise. Liana's story begins in her childhood home in Chicago. So I grew up in a traditional community back when traditional with the capital T was a denomination in Chicago. So really, so like for those who aren't familiar with traditional Judaism in America, it, it doesn't really exist that much anymore, but it was basically like all traditional liturgy in shul, only men on the bima, but no machitza, and the women would wear like maybe doilies and maybe pants, and like everyone was just sitting together, but everything like about the liturgy and only men on the bima, but there were microphones. It was like, and some people drove to shul, but it wasn't conservative Judaism. It was like just right of, it was sort of like in between conservative and orthodox Judaism, but it was mm-hmm. very tradition motivated, very like we do this because this is the way it's supposed to be. But in my home, there was no like talk of halacha being like, like um, just an ideological construct. It was just like, oh, why do we keep kosher? Because that's what Jews do. Like if you're not, if you're not kosher, you're just like not doing Judaism. Like, I don't know there was like, there wasn't necessarily any judgment about like, they're not doing it right. But it was just like, we're doing it because this is what Jews do. Um, mm-hmm. And I grew up speaking Yiddish. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, so my, it wasn't, I mean, I guess, a few generations back, we were Hasidish, but my my immediate family was not Hasidish. It was just my mom grew up speaking Yiddish, and she wanted um, to raise me bilingual because she she felt contrary to popular science at the time, like she felt that it would be good for my brain. Now we know that it is good for cognitive development to expose children to many languages, but mm-hmm. at the time, my mom was being very radical thirty years ago. Um, so yeah, I grew up speaking Yiddish. I went to a conservative day school. I went to a Solomon Schechter through eighth grade. Um, and then for high school, I went to a modern Orthodox high school um, called um, Ida Crown Jewish Academy. In Chicago, mm-hmm. we call it the Academy. Everywhere else, they call it Ida Crown. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I kind of like got more into like halachic Judaism in high school through a combination of like the classes that I was taking in school together with involvement in NCSY. I kind of like developed my own motivation for from for like engaging with from kite i like would we for some reason we were shower shabbos but we used light switches on shabbos for some reason but i like came home and i like started taping up the light switches at home so i wouldn't say that i was necessarily like a baal tshuva necessarily but i was like definitely feeling like i wanted things to be a little frummer at home. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to college, I was the, actually the only Shomer Shabbos person on campus at the time. I went to the University of Rochester and I kind of like burned out because <laughs> that's a big <laughs> thing to do for four yeah. years. Um, yeah. And so after college, I kind of had what I call my little room springa where I took a break from being Shomer Shabbos to see if I actually cared about it for my own reasons or if I was just doing it because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, I came out as I like women. I don't know if that means I'm gay or I'm bi. I wish I knew for sure that I was gay because then things would just be easier, but I really Mm -hmm. didn't know. So I came out as queer. 
And that was around the time of the very first Eshel Shabbaton, which that was very important. Like, I don't think I would have been able to come out even to myself if it weren't for the fact that Eshel existed. Okay. So, um, yeah. so we have a young Yiddish-speaking yeah. <laughs> traditional Liana. You grow up yeah. in this traditional yeah. household in Chicago yeah. and um, through NCSY involvement in high school, like you're- um, I'm firming out a little. Becoming- Flip, flip it out. out a little, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and then you head off to university in Rochester. Yeah. Did you have any inkling before that that maybe you were queer or? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I definitely like had a fear, like a niggling fear in the back of my mind that maybe I'm bi or something. Like I knew that like there was something a little different, but it wasn't clear to me the way that, that it is to some people. And I definitely like... I, I remember having a conversation with my sister where I like was crying to her and telling her that like, I'm really scared that I'm a lesbian. Like I didn't want to really examine this part of myself because I was really scared that what I would discover is in fact, I'm gay. But she said, she said to me, listen, it seems like you're still attracted to men. And so like, how hard do you want your life to be? And she said, I could easily be a lesbian, but like, how hard do you want your life to be? So I was, that like shoved me even deeper in to the closet I was like I definitely can't examine this part of myself and she's right I guess I still like guys so like I'll just focus on that part and just like shove this part down and like just move on so you had this conversation with your sister when you're in high school or it was in high school like yeah but I wasn't really mm -hmm. seriously entertaining the possibility it was more just a fear it was less of like I think this is real and more just what if this is real at that yeah. stage yeah yeah I, I definitely recognize that feeling and I think it was um, like, it was less, it was more just, I had no vision for what my life could be like. Like what I wanted for myself at that time was like, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to have like, a, from like, to me, and this is going to come out a little offensive. Like, I was like, if I come out and I want to be Jewish, I'm going to have to win the shoal where you like sit with Rabbi Becky on a hilltop with a guitar singing like Matovu. And like, that's great. I'm so happy that kind of Judaism exists, but that's not the Judaism that compels me personally. And I thought that it was, it really had to be a choice, like either to be from or to be gay. Um, mm -hmm. And so it wasn't really, it wasn't really until I met like my first queer from Jew that I was like, oh, maybe they can both coexist. That was really when things started mm -hmm. to open up for me personally. And I was able to like look at myself more seriously. So when, when did you meet a queer from Jew? Cause I have to say, I think I came out and, or not came out, but I came to terms with my sexuality and was really like living in this for like years before I met another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really lucky. I'll even say his name cause he loves it. <laughs> Zach Cohen. Um, he okay. loves being the star of my story. Um, he, so I, my family goes to this, um, Yiddish speakers family camp every year called Yiddish Vach. It's at the end of the summer. And, um, this one particular year we were in a camp that needed to have the kitchen koshered beforehand. So I volunteered to go a couple days early and help the mashkiach kosher the kitchen in walks the mashkiach. And like, I could smell the gate a mile away. Like I was like, this guy's undeniably from, but also like undeniably gay. And like, I was just like so fascinated by him because I'd never seen that before. And at some point we just like had a conversation and he was like, yeah, listen, it's complicated, but this is undeniably who I am. And Whoa, also wait, 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 how do you, 
how do you get from point A, <laughs> Mashkiach walks through the door and like Gadar goes yeah. off to having a conversation about Well, that. you know, you get, I mean, he was our age. He wasn't like an older, like wiser. I mean, mm-hmm. he definitely was wiser, but he wasn't like this old, like inaccessible guy. He was like, you know, he's a few years younger than me. I felt like we were peers. And after a couple of days of like blowtorching pans, like, you know, you develop some rapport. <laughs> so uh-huh. I don't know. I don't remember exactly where the turning point was, but I just remember sitting on the floor at one point and being like, I think I might be queer, but like, I'm not, I like, I don't really know what to do about it. Cause I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know, I don't know how to reconcile the from like motivations that I have and how to let those both coexist. And he, he, it was just very simple for him. He was like, I'm undeniably from and I'm undeniably gay and I can't sacrifice one part of myself for the other. And I understand that it's complicated, but it just is. Mm-hmm. So you mean- he was, he was one of the witnesses on our ketubah, by the way. Yeah. Wow, that is, that is really beautiful. <laughs> that is full circle He's a special, right there. special guy in our life for sure. That was the beginning of what? The beginning of you being able to consider yeah. it? So or... it was the beginning of me giving myself permission to like examine this fear seriously instead of like, no, 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 I won't look at you to like, mm-hmm. what are you exactly? Um, and th- so what did that look like? So I don't know. It's kind of a blur. That year of my life was like a very, like it was from a mental health perspective, it was like the most intense year of my life um Mm -hmm. for like many reasons rolled into one not just the coming out piece of it but that was in August that December was the first Eshel Shabbaton so I was like having my quarter life crisis like spinning out of control Mm -hmm. and Zach like was at my house for like I think I had like a birthday Shabbos or something like that and he came over and he's like oh there's this Shabbaton for like from from queer Jews and you should go and it's in two weeks or something like that and I was like oh my god I have to go I signed up like at the last I was like yeah I was out of my mind like I didn't really know how to process it. were you out to anyone at that yeah I mean I I like came out to the people around me at the same time as me coming out to myself so I came out as like okay I don't know if it was really questioning it was like I like girls I don't know what that means I guess I'm queer I'm figuring it out maybe I'm bi I don't know but like, I like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like saying out loud, I'm attracted to girls. Okay. So the people around you at that time were people that you were in like university with? Yeah. I was, I was in my first year of grad school at the time. Um, yeah. I mean, everyone was like, I mean, nobody was upset about it. I was so, I, I'm so fortunate that like the people that I, sur- that I surround myself with, it's a self-selecting group. Like I remember in college, most of my friends were gay. And my dad, even like when I came out, my dad is like, do you think that maybe this has something to do with the fact that like all your friends are gay and maybe they influenced <laughs> you? And I said to him, I was like, do you think that maybe like subconsciously I was just attracted to these people because we had something in common that I couldn't really understand yet? And he was like surprisingly receptive to that counter argument. He was like, oh yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so everyone was either gay or queer or an ally like nobody was a dick about it everyone was great my parents weren't thrilled but certainly way better than some of the horrible stories that I've heard for them it was more just they didn't want me to have a horrible life they just wanted me to be happy and what this was not the life that they had envisioned for me but ultimately they just wanted me to be happy and it took them a few years and I think it was it was harder for them to accept that like I didn't know 
because they were like still hoping that I would end up with a man. And so like after I mm-hmm. came out, like I dated, um, I dated someone who at the time was identifying as a woman, but now identifies as genderqueer and then a trans man. And then after that, I dated a cis man. And when I dated the cis man, they were like, oh, mm-hmm, maybe now, maybe she's finally gotten it out of her system, but that didn't work out. And something that I learned from that was that cis men are not my brand. And <laughs> but then it was easy for it was easier for them to accept at that point because then it was like okay she gave it the old college try she really like this one really had potential but like it's not for her and it was easier for mm-hmm. them to accept at that point um mm-hmm. so okay I think let me just backtrack here for a minute so I can sort of get the pieces together um so your parents even while you're becoming maybe more involved in like traditional orthodox or maybe traditional is not the right word heard, but you know, like mainstream. <laughs> well, mainstream orthodoxy. Orthodox, yeah. Um, okay. Are your parents still traditional? Yeah. Do they move I think, more to I the think right? They like, well, in my shul, there was like the traditional minion upstairs and then what we called the machitza minion downstairs. And so like, you okay. know, growing up, we were always upstairs minion people, but gradually and I think this had both to do with like my becoming more from and to do with just like mm-hmm. generationally, the sh- like the upstairs minion was an older and older and older crowd that was slowly petering off. And so now mm-hmm. in our show, I think if the upstairs minion meets at all, then it's only like once a month. And so really the Machita minion mm-hmm. is the only minion that really still exists mm-hmm. at that show. But you're saying that like they, they might've moved like into the more um, like, like- mainstream orthodox show but like their worldview no yeah they're still not like compelled by like this notion of like a halachic framework or like I never even heard the word Avera until I got to high school like that's like Hashem for them is not like a guy with a lightning bolt who's gonna like get you if you do something wrong like that's not really how we roll Mm -hmm. so growing up how did you hear about queer people how did that enter oh, wow. your worldview? You know, I actually don't know. Maybe TV? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, well, actually, if I'm really thinking about it, I do remember one time when I was six, like I remember being in the car and just like wondering about the world and asking, like wondering about weddings and asking my mother, mm-hmm. like, does it ever happen that like a woman and another woman might get married? And I was just imagining two wedding dresses, like walking down the aisle. And she was like, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm like, okay. Just like, you know, you throw a ball down, it doesn't go up. Two ladies don't get married. That's not a thing. Okay, moving on. I remember that. I wasn't like sad about it. I just remember, like, I just very vividly remember that. And I also remember like just some like little homophobic things that my mom would sometimes say. Like sometimes she would see like a man wearing an earring and she'd be like, do you see which ear he has his earring in? You know how you know which one is which? Because left is right and right is wrong. So if the earring is in his right ear, you know he's gay because gay is wrong. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't even know if uh-huh. people care anymore. People just like pierce their ear if they want to pierce their ear. But no, I did hear something about nose piercing. Oh, really? What does this mean? Like, if that's it's on the something right side? that I got. I don't know which side is which, but one of them is the lesbian side. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> like, one nose piercing is just like edgy and then the other nose piercing is Oh, gay. I didn't know. I, I hope I have the right one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can be edgy. Well, anyway, I have right I is wrong. So I don't know if that, if, it, if it's the same code for the nose. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. 
Um, so I don't know if that's like how I heard about gay or if it was that plus Will and Grace, but I, I don't know. Like it, when I was in, when I was in high school and I was like imagining what gay people were to me, it was, it was never something that could possibly be connected with anybody that I knew. It was like gay people are like the people on the floats with like the flag. Mm -hmm. They're not like people, they're just like gays. And I remember having an epiphany in college when I was like, like making meaningful friendships with people who happened to be gay. And I was like, it seems so obvious, but I remember having this moment of like, oh, gay people are people who are gay and they have like families and like childhoods and like interests outside of being gay. <laughs> and there was this aha moment for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you say that like you head off to college and you're befriending all these queer people, maybe because you identify with that a little maybe. bit. Maybe, maybe I just, just like because... theater. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and your parents were aware that you had a bunch of queer yeah. friends, I guess, before you came yeah. out. Um, and like, they were cool with yeah, that. Yeah, they were like, okay, these are your friends. Mm-hmm. And what about your religious community? Like, so I didn't really have a community in college. Like I said, I was the only Shimmer mm-hmm. person on campus. I was kind of doing my thing in a vacuum. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the closest thing I had to community was like going to Chabad on Shabbos every week. But it was very clear to me that like, I, I'm not Chabad. Chabad is like a useful resource to like take what I want mm-hmm. and leave the stuff that's not for me. And I think I was like, I had already had like the Kiru of Kool-Aid in high school with NCSY. And so I felt like I was sufficiently immune to the Kiru of Kool-Aid that they were selling. And I made it very clear to them that I wasn't <laughs> buying what they were selling, but I still very much loved them and appreciated them and would come to their house for Shabbos and help them cook and all that stuff. So, but I didn't like have mm-hmm. a community of peers or anything like that from a religious mm-hmm. standpoint in college. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take Rumspringa. Is that at the end yes. of your... So that was after, well, actually, I remember the moment it was Pesach my senior year, and I was just like so sick of like doing Yuntif alone. And I remember just being like, I have to watch Netflix. I have to watch Netflix. I just have to do it. And I just remember that the first moment that I like clicked a mouse on Yuntif, mm-hmm. and I was just like, okay, this is normal. This is fine. <laughs> and um, yeah, then it was just like gradually over the next few years, I was like just taking a little creative detour from traditional mm-hmm. like Shomer, Shabbos, Shomer, Yantif observance. Mm-hmm. But you stayed involved in, in Yiddishvach. Yes, Yiddishvach is like a family thing. You can't not go to Yiddishvach. Okay. Yeah, what's really interesting about the Yiddish speaking community outside of the Hasidic world in America is mm-hmm. it's like, it's first of all, it's very queer because it's like it's a very deeply rooted, authentic connection to Judaism that does not necessitate any relationship to Israel, but you can have a relationship to Israel if you want to, but it's not a necessary entry point. And it does not necessitate like from observance, but you can if you want to, but nobody's forcing you to. But like, as long as you can speak Yiddish, you have an authentic connection to Judaism. You could be from, you could not be from, you could be Zionist, you could be anti-Zionist, doesn't matter if you Mm -hmm. have Yiddish. So that's something that's cool about the Yiddish speaking community. Oh, now I'm remembering another early gay exposure memory. I remember because it's such a queer community, um, there's a talent show. This is like the highlight of Yiddish Rock every year is the talent show. And I remember 
my mother would audio record the talent show every year and then we'd sometimes just listen to it in the car. And I remember there was one woman who I got up and read her poem, Suzanne, a lesbiana, to be a lesbian. And everyone, like, I remember we were just like laughing, like, hee, 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 she said lesbian, ah! <laughs> I'm like, my mother wouldn't let me like pay attention because it was inappropriate or whatever. I remember it was so scandalous that she's like talking about being a lesbian, ah! <laughs> and that's like, <laughs> oh, Yiddishwa, what a great place. <laughs> it sounds like it. It sounds like a really great resource to have. Yeah. Um, Everyone should, all the a, queers should learn Yiddish. <laughs> national language. Yes. Yeah, national language <laughs> of the queers. <laughs> um, so then you, you meet Zach Cohen. Yes. You go to yes. Eshel, and then what happens? Um, well, that Eshel was really meaningful because I, everyone there kind of seemed to think that they were the only one struggling with this like dichotomy of like queer from identity. How do I reconcile? And that first Eshel was really monumental. It felt like a bomb had gone off in the room. Everyone was just so shell-shocked and like thrilled to find one another. And I don't really know I mean, it makes it makes for a better story if I knew all the steps in between, but I don't really remember that. I think it just gave me permission to explore. I think there was just a moment where I was like, listen, I don't know if I'm gay or I'm bi or I'm queer or what, but I am no longer taking a top down approach to dating. I'm just going to like follow my heart. Like whoever I'm attracted to, I'm just going to be honest about that. And I, I gave myself permission to date non-Jewish people because like maybe that's not something that's important to me either. Um, but just mm -hmm. don't tell myself who to want. Just like be honest with yourself about who you're interested in. And so that, and it was, I think it was only once I gave my, myself permission to explore in that way that I was able to like really experience firsthand what it is to be in a queer relationship, what it is to feel close to someone in that way. Um, mm -hmm. that like, you know, that just, I mean, it just got, I think it was really through my relationships that I was able to more, more accurately fine tune my identity and my attractions. So when did you have your first queer relationship? Um, so let me see, I came out, that was winter of my freshman year. And I think it was probably, I think it was in the summer of that year that I met someone on OkCupid. Um, mm -hmm. They were deaf. Oh, wow. They were, Is OkCupid still around? I mean, I, I might be, but I don't use it anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm married <laughs> now, but um, yeah, mm -hmm. they, were, they were deaf. They were queer. They weren't Jewish. It was like a threefer. It was like experimentation all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, even though they weren't the right person for me ultimately I really give them a lot of credit for cracking me open and like helping yeah. me see what like an intimate a real intimate connection with someone could feel like because I, I guess I hadn't really realized until we were together that like every guy who I had been with previously there was always like a part of me being like mm, let's like see where this goes but like not really just fully being in it Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't until that relationship that I was like oh this is what it could feel like oh this is oh, okay I see what trust could be like okay um mm -hmm. yeah I was more scared to tell my dad that that person wasn't Jewish than that it was 
a queer relationship. Wow. Well, I think that that says something, I guess, about the the relationship that you had with your parents and also um, their worldview. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I mean, they're very motivated by the Holocaust. The Holocaust is like the primary motivator. That's the reason I went to day school because if I go to public schools and the Nazis win, like it was really like that. My dad is the president of the Sheraton Tapaleta organization in Chicago right now. He was like the president of the Association of Children of Holocaust Survivors for 12 years when I was growing up. Like the Holocaust is very central in the narrative of our family. So like, okay, if you're gay, you know, you, you could still have a Jewish family, but if you like end up with someone non-Jewish, like mm-hmm. that's, even though, I mean, you're Jewish. I know, so. but I think that, I think I, I, I imagined like a real, like breaking my father's heart, but you know what? He responded mm-hmm. much more positively than I thought it would be. He ultimately was like, listen, you're with someone non-Jewish. That's your problem. Like <laughs> that was basically <laughs> what he said. He's like, that, that's for you. Listen, Judaism is important to you. So if, if, if you're navigating this, then, you know, good luck. <laughs> Oh, wow. So you're saying because, because your parents knew that you were so I think so. in Judaism, like they kind of recognized that this would be, I think so something for you to figure out. I think out. so. <laughs> I think so. I, I think they weren't worried that my kids wouldn't be Jewish. I think they were okay with that mm-hmm. part. I mean, they didn't want me to marry someone non-Jewish, but I don't think they would be the kind of parents who like wouldn't come to the wedding or like wouldn't talk to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you give yourself permission to date whoever you're attracted to and whoever feels right and and does good for you um what is your relationship to Judaism like during this time um complicated yeah because I was I was figuring out what I truly cared about um I was living in a Moisha house at the time so it was very easy for me Mm -hmm. to like DIY my relationship with Judaism um, and have communal support for that. I think, you know, I just continued to be a resident of Moisha House. I continued to go on Moisha House retreats and continued to like host Shabbos meals and kind of brought my non-Jewish partners along for the ride. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think my, my dad's probably right. Like, you know, my, my relationship with Judaism is complicated, but it's not necessarily up for negotiation. And there was one relationship that I was in where like, the inconsistency of my observance was a problem because sometimes I would be Shomer Shabbos and sometimes I wouldn't be Shomer Shabbos. But the people who were close to me knew not to like expect me to be available to drive somewhere on Shabbos because you never knew whether or not I was going to have like a Shabbos or a Saturday. And then I had, I remember having one particular fight with this partner where they were like, they were asking me to pick them up from the airport on a Friday afternoon, very Mm -hmm. close to Shabbos. And I was like, I can't commit to that. And they were like, oh, well, you only want to be Shavar Shavas when it's like inconvenient for me. And I was like, this is not up for negotiation. This is not okay. I need to be able to be free to have my room spring up. That was a problem for us. That was one of the things I learned from that relationship was that I think I needed someone who like got, who un- they didn't have to share exactly my observance, but they needed to at least be on the same page understanding where I was coming from. Mm-hmm. So you need someone who could understand where you were coming from. Um, did that translate into dating Jewish yeah, so people? Well, like, the next, what, what did that turn well, into? Well, the next person I dated after that was a, a rabbinical student who was a cis man. Um, and mm-hmm. I, re- I learned from that relationship that while a cis man is not right for me, someone who is mm-hmm. like 
actively religiously engaged is meaningful for me. So, you know, every relationship mm-hmm. teaches you something valuable about yourself. And um, yeah. yeah. Post very nice rabbinical student who is not for you. Um, I know at some point you moved to Washington yes. Heights. How do we get from rabbinical student <laughs> to moving to Washington Heights? Cause it's the best place for queer. It's people. true. <laughs> it was funny. I, okay. So I, I, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to present this. Okay. So I knew that I, I had graduated from grad school and I knew that I was moving to New York but I didn't know, I was debating whether to, lo- to move to Brooklyn or Washington Heights. I was like, where are my people gonna be? I knew I wanted to be with people who felt like my people. And <clears throat> some lesbians I knew had just gotten married. That was the, f- the first from gay wedding I had ever been to. It was very meaningful mm-hmm. and moving and inspiring for me. And at their Sheva Brachot, one of the Kalas, I was like, can I have a bracha? And she took me into a separate room and she was like, what you need is from queer community. What you need is to move to Washington Heights. <laughs> she basically gave me a bracha where she told me what to do. And I did it. I moved to Washington Heights because of this bracha from Akala. And it was the right move because that's where all of like, ever since Eshel had started, now from queer people are starting to come out of the woodwork. And Washington Heights turns into this little hub where it's not just the YU crowd living in the area. There's mm-hmm. also a not small contingent of like from queer Jews living within the Arab. So while mm-hmm. Brooklyn is great, it's much more spread out and Washington Heights is more of a shtetl. So I moved to Washington Heights mm-hmm. and I was there for a year and then I went to Pardes for a year and then I came back. So you're in Washington Heights for a year, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, this is, even now, I know there's been some movement in Washington Heights that there are like shoals that are really welcome and inviting, but was that the environment that you walked yeah, into? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the base was just starting out when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I felt like, I, I mean, I, there was never a moment where I felt like I had to pretend not to be queer. I felt like whatever whatever environment I was in and part of it was self-selecting <clears throat> but I always mm-hmm. felt like I could just be like out and proud and from at all at the same time at whatever Shabbos meal I was at even if it was like why you people I was like this is who I am you don't like it I'll see you at a- mm-hmm. another Shabbos meal never like <laughs> I just felt like I had enough I had enough community that I could afford to lose the haters um, but fortunately I didn't really experience any hating Wow, that is incredible, <laughs> that level of like conviction and- I'm also a person who was raised not to like care what other people think so much. I'm very opposite from my wife <laughs> in that way, who is very English and very like, she was, head girl is actually a thing in England. I don't know if you knew this, but like she was actually the head girl <laughs> when she was in high school, beloved by students and teachers alike. Um, and I was raised by a family who didn't know how to fit in, so made it a value to like not fit in. It's like, oh, if everyone else is wearing Pumas, then you should Davka and not buy the Pumas because why would you want to be like everybody else? So those values, I think, took deep root in me and I just cared very little about if other people didn't approve of me. Queer in like the truest guess, sense yeah, of the an world. Word. Sense. Yeah, because even when I was uh-huh. doing from like in a traditional sense, I, it was very important to me. I was very afraid of being seen as a sheep. 
it was very important to me that like, even if I was wearing skirts, that I wasn't wearing the skirts that everyone was wearing. I wasn't wearing like the black stretchy skirt and like these shoes and this type of top. It was like, I wanted it to look like I was Tineas by accident. Like I just fell into an outfit that happened to be Tineas. Cause I, it was very important to me mm-hmm. to look like I was making conscious choices and not just doing what everyone was doing. So it sounds like that's something that really came through for you when you were coming to terms with your own identity and your place in the yeah, world. I think so. Then you move to Israel um, to go to Pardis. Awesome place, by yes. the way. So you were there for a year. And what were you studying? So I was in the experiential educators program. So mm-hmm. I, was, I was basically just studying Torah, generally speaking, with some experiential education sprinkled on there. But I was really mm-hmm. just there to like, I mean, I was hoping to fall in love with from Judaism again. I was hoping to close the room, spring a chapter formally, and just, I was, I was really hoping to just get back to like the fervor that I had in high school, but it didn't happen that way because I was an adult now and Judaism is much more complex than the black and white picture that I had in high school. But I definitely like, I, I, I reanimated something, but obviously you can't just go back to who you were as a teenager. Um, yeah, I would say it was a very meaningful year for me. Um, but it wasn't meaningful in the way that people who are like, I think some people come to Pardes and it's their first exposure to learning Torah or their first exposure to like living from a from life that is mm-hmm. open-minded. And so for them, I think it's much more earth shattering in their like relationship with them, their identity and their worldview in a way that it wasn't really for me. It was much more subtle, I think. Well, what, what was that like? Did you get involved in any queer communities while you were here? A little bit. I, I, I went to, okay, so I think I went to like one Batkol Chavruta event. I definitely was in, mm-hmm. I walked in the Jerusalem Pride Parade where, what was her name? Shira Banki was killed. Um, oh, wow. I mean, I, I didn't see it, but I was like, that was, I was at that parade, um, or the, the march. Um, yeah, El, um, she was a um, Sadranit. She was um, helping like the flow mm. of traffic. She was volunteering for the open house um, and she was there in the parade, maybe, you know, a few meters oh away. And that was a really pivotal moment for her um, in her relationship with her identity. Yeah. But I can't um, imagine. Yeah. I do remember the, the overall feeling on that day in the crowd, like it started out joyous and then it was confused because we saw the ambulances. We thought someone had like passed out from dehydration or something like that. Mm-hmm. And once everyone realized what had happened, like nobody, there was no question that like the march was still going to happen. But I remember feeling like just the tone shifted to, to like, instead of just like, yay, happy to like, like we have to keep March, like this march needs to happen. And it turned into this like determined, like, com- compelling kind of energy. I think that was really powerful to be a part of. Wow, yeah, I'm sure. So you're in Israel trying to find that sort of spark again. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't so involved in queer community while I was there. I mean, just like a little mm-hmm. peripherally. Also, mm-hmm. my my roommates were involved with, oh, what is that Egal Minion? What is it? It's like very friendly and I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, that was that was the extent of my queer involvement while I was in Israel. I, I like I gave myself permission to lean hard into the Pardes bubble. I was like, I'm, I'm here yeah. for Pardes. 
I can come back to Israel anytime and be like a person of the world. But like here, I, I just want to soak up what Pardes has to offer me. Well, okay. I, I know that you're, you're a yes. therapist. Oh, that, that was what I soaked up. Oh my God. How could I not? Well, was that, that? was that something that happened oh, here? Yes, or? there was a class. Of, okay. I can't believe it. How could I forget to say that? Yes. They offered a Wednesday night elective in like introdu introduction to scribal arts. And I fell in love with it. And we asked him to do a, like a level mm -hmm. two, the second semester for the students who were motivated. Mm -hmm. Cause usually he just does in the second semester, another level one class. So he added a level two class. So yeah, I, I fell in love with Sephiroth. I, I got really into it and I started writing my first Megillah, which took me a very, very long time, but I finished it. Did you have any indication that that was something you like, you'd be interested well, in before? I'm, I'm crafty. I'm not an artist, but I am definitely a craftily motivated person. Um, as you know, I'm a Sign language interpreter. So I definitely think that I'm a tactile kinetic type of learner. So the idea of engaging with Judaism, engaging with mitzvot through like a tactile crafty kind of way really appealed to me. Um, but it, it never occurred to me that I could access that until I just saw that this was offered. Um, but yes, it is something that is meaningful for me now. And, and my sufferers teacher wrote my ketubah. Wow. So you're really like picking up threads from all over yes. your life in this, in this wedding ceremony. I really tried to, we want, we, we wanted it to be really meaningful and really representative of us. Um, okay. So before we get to your yes. wedding ceremony though, you head back to Washington yes. Heights and, and that brings us, how do we get from, you know, returning from Pardis into New York to married with a very meaningful what happens in between? Well, that year, <laughs> um, so that was the year, I don't remember what the timeline was. Actually, okay, if we met in May, it was two years, two months earlier. So May, April, March. Okay, so it wasn't until March that I got um, a text message from my friend Talia Lacris. Um, she mm -hmm. said, are you in the Parsha? Which is for me speaking for, oh, yes, are you in the Parsha <laughs> versus are you in the freezer? If you know, you know, right? So I was like, I don't know, who is it? Um, so she, so I mean, like, yes, theoretically, tell me about her. Oh, she's British. Oh, she's a lawyer. Oh, she went to Bravinders. I'm like, huh, okay. <laughs> she has an accent. She went to Bravinder. Oh my God. She's got her life together. She went to law school. Okay. Um, so she said, do you want her phone number? And I said, no, give her my phone number. I like to be pursued. Tell her to give me a call. Mm -hmm. So I thought that Talia Lackritz knew her, but as it turns out, it was Talia Lackritz's former NCSY advisor's friend's friend who was friends with Sandy. So there were four Yentas connecting us. Um, so the message traveled. That's a lot of Shadchan So many. So the, and, and these three live in Israel. This one's the only one who lives in New York. So, <laughs> so the message travels back to Sandy. Um, here's her number. She said to give her a call. And Sandy's like, and what I meant by that was she should text me and set up a time to give me a call. She got this. She's like, I have to call her, like actually call her. And they're like, I don't know. That's what she said. So she calls me and I obviously ignore it because I don't know this number. She leaves me a voicemail. I never listened to it. Who, this is some telemarketer leaving me a voicemail about my car warranty. I, I don't know. But I just assumed that like this person wasn't interested. It's fine. I'm not offended. It's not like she met me and didn't like me. She never called me. That's fine. So two months later, I get a text. So meanwhile, we date other people. I date her ex. She dates someone else. Um, and she texts me while I'm, I happened to be working for Pardes in North America at the time um, doing recruitment. And she texts me. She's like, hi, 
um, just reaching out. I don't remember exactly what she said, but basically like I may have left a mildly flirtatious uh, voicemail for the wrong person, but I was like, oh my God, she left a voicemail. Oh my God. And I started scrolling back in my voicemails that I found from two months ago that she had called. I was so embarrassed that I never like listened to the voicemail. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yes, of course. I'd love to go out with you. Um, mm -hmm. And then Real yeah. talk though, do you answer phone calls now from unknown no, numbers? No, I, I didn't learn my lesson. <laughs> now I actually found a setting on my phone that automatically filters out phone numbers that it thinks might be spam. And sometimes it filters out real people. <laughs> Whatever, I'm married now. I wonder, I wonder how many people you need to call in order for the phone to think that you're a spam caller. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the criteria like, there are. There are like a lot of bubbies who are just- <laughs> I know, I really don't know what their criteria are. But yeah, they send it straight to voicemail mm -hmm. if they think it's spam. Um, anyway <laughs> we went out on may 21st we went to she offered me uh three restaurants two of which sounded expensive and one of which was pitopia and i didn't want her to think that i was like materialistic and she was actually just mm -hmm. trying to fish out whether i was vegetarian so she was like she offered me two flashic and one milchik i was like oh two expensive and one cheap it must be a trick question she wants to see if i go for the expensive restaurant i'm gonna pick the cheap restaurant <laughs> so i i picked pitopia which is like a schnitzel and falafel place and she's like that was the most disgusting of the three why don't you pick that okay whatever and then we got there and sh she was like still trying to assess whether or not I was a vegetarian. And then I was like, maybe I'll pick falafel because it's the cheapest thing on the menu. I'm like, she's like, oh no, she's picking falafel. Maybe she's a vegetarian. <laughs> and then in the end I picked like a schnitzel ball. And then she's like, phew, she eats meat. <laughs> Our relationship is very heavily rooted in flesh enthusiasm. So. As somebody who is um, very not vegan and <laughs> about to get married to someone who is very vegan, I, uh, it's possible. <laughs> I it is possible. I know a couple who makes it work. <laughs> as long yeah. as they support each other's dietary habits, I think it's fine. Well, I have to say that, you know, Yael is not religious. Um, I am religious-ish, mm -hmm. yeah. I think. I'm confused. Yeah. Um, but everybody is always really confused about how that aspect of our relationship works. And I'm like, no, 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 that's fine. Like we worked that out within the first, I don't know, like three or four dates, the vegan thing. This is the real conflict. Yes, I bet, I bet, I bet. I know a couple who like, I don't know, I can't remember if she's vegetarian or vegan, but she's, she doesn't eat meat. And her husband has a, like, a, I think it, two smokers because he likes to make his own bacon. Like... <laughs> It's a special relationship that they can just let each other coexist like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you passed the vegetarian test. Passed the vegetarian test. test. Um. <laughs> and I passed my self-created gold digger test um, <laughs> that she didn't even know was a test. Um, yeah. And she, so on that date, so we, we, we went to the High Line, which is a popular spot for people on actual shidduch dates so it was really funny mm -hmm. for us to like watch the people on other shidduch dates and be like they don't know that we're also on a shidduch date um so that was fun mm -hmm. for us and then we went to a bar to get a drink afterwards and it comes out she like let it slip something about being in shul on a sunday morning and i was like you're like like going to minion on sunday mornings and it, it turns out her father had died recently and she was like very mm -hmm. hardcore about like saying Kaddish with a minion Same three kind. times a day. So she actually had to cut the date short so that she could make it to the latest Mari minion available. Mm -hmm. but she sent me home in a cab. <laughs> and that's when I knew. 
<laughs> she's a winner. <laughs> I was fine taking the subway home, but I came home to my roommates and I'm like, she sent me home in an Uber. <laughs> so where did that, I guess, hit you on your religious journey? Because it sounds like Sandy is like very religiously dedicated if I think yeah I think it was I think it was less of a religious motivation and more of like I don't know I mean I'd have to ask her she she just felt obligated it wasn't she she just Mm -hmm. I think it was partially she like legitimately felt high of and it wasn't like a choice that she made she just felt like this is what you do when your dad dies but also like her Mm -hmm. dad kind of he passed away very suddenly in in a way that I'm sure was very traumatic and I think it was probably like useful to have something to hold on to in that way. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but this is something I'm supposed to do. Um, so mm-hmm. I think for me, it was, it felt like I had hit the jackpot. Like I really had thought that I had to mourn the idea of like the nexus of like someone who's religiously motivated and someone who is undeniably queer in one person, someone who like really got that religious side and also the queer side, like you know, when she told me that she was going to Minion, I was like, oh my God, she has like her own legitimate relationship with her Judaism that is passionate and it's different from my own, but like she is on a journey. She really cares about Mm -hmm. her relationship with her Judaism. And that was really important Mm -hmm. to me. Wow. Um, You said that you felt like you had to mourn. Yeah, I think I was, I mean, I just hadn't really been finding so like, I hadn't really found anyone who was who satisfied both of those sides yet and it's a very small pool and like what are the odds that you're going to find someone who is like like from in some way and also queer in the same way that you're queer and also like geographically desirable and also you click with as people, like, what are the odds? The pool is so small. I knew that my odds were good, given that I was in Washington Heights. And like, that's where you're going to be if you're going to find, I mean, she was living on the Upper West Side, but, you know, living in New York is where you're going to scoop up your person. If, if this is the pool that you're looking for, I think. Um, but it was really, it's really special to meet her. <laughs> and so we got engaged that so that was May of 2017 and mm. then June of 2018 we got engaged and December 2018 we got married wow yeah. so two years two years and a little bit um yeah it was like it was like a year and a half from when we met to when we got married well you've been married, married for, for two years, years. Yeah. that's married sorry. for two years uh-huh. yeah we just celebrated our two year anniversary mm-hmm. in December Mazel thank fun. you so you get yes. married, um, and and now you are living in a religious. Yeah. So we have. So it's yeah. The, I mean, the shul that we uh, are too lazy to go to, but I'll, it's COVID anyway. Is um, it's a partnership minion, so it's like Shira Hadasha style minion, mm-hmm. um, which I think I think halachic egal might be ideologically a better fit for us, but this is the community that we're a part of and we like it and it's fine. And I guess, how do you envision your future? Queer, Jewish, otherwise? Well, I mean, we're, we're working on, on having some babies. Corona has been like a, a great time for IVF because there's no plans to ruin. It's not like we're doing anything else. We're always available to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. 
So we're working on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I recently had like a bit of an ideological shift um, where I'm much more firmly comfortable with like halakhic egalitarianism, true, like true egalitarian expectation. It just makes sense to me that Hashem like doesn't care about my gender. Like Hashem sees me as a Jewish person and like, not that Hashem doesn't care about my gender, but like there are so many meets to vote. And like, like my Chabad rabbi in college said, like there's 613 opportunities to connect. There are not 613 opportunities to feel guilty. So like, it's, how could it be that some of these opportunities wouldn't be available to me just because I'm a woman? That doesn't make sense. Like everybody's brain Mm -hmm. is different. And I think the fact that I'm in like a relationship that is to women and I have lots of friends who are in same-sex relationships highlights that there is no essentialism to gender. There's no like men are this way and women are this way and women are on a higher spiritual level and that's why they, I'm sorry to anyone who finds that meaningful, but like, like there is no inherent like biological difference in the way that people of different genders relate to spirituality. Mm -hmm. Everybody is unique. And so I do believe that Hashem knows that too. And mm-hmm. the mitzvot are an opportunity for us to connect to Judaism in a way that makes sense for us. So I, you know, what I envision for our future family and our kids is, is passing that along. It's passing along a love for Judaism that is authentic, that isn't really based in other people's expectations, but that is based in being, being authentic, being true to yourself and being true to what is, what, what is meaningful and what animates you. There's, there's so many options. There's so many ways. If something doesn't work for you, then try something else. Um, yeah. If you had to give um, a word of advice to young queer Jews, what what would that oh, be? Oh my goodness! Find your people. Absolutely, you got to find your people. You're not alone. You are not the first person who has struggled with whatever it is that you're struggling with, whether it's family rejection, whether it's internal turmoil of figuring out how to um, reconcile the two, there are other people who have, who have gone through this, who can be with you and hold you in your experience. Cause for me, finding, finding other people. Yeah. Just finding, finding out that I wasn't alone was really the key to opening up authentic existence for me. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is find your people. Okay. Um, and I did have one thing that I noted down. I, first of all, I really, really enjoyed reading your, um, handwritten letter post. I I don't know exactly how to describe it, but, um, I'll be sure and I'll link it if that's okay with you. Cause I think it's like a really moving read, but you wrote at the end that as, as I struggle with an ever-growing pile of questions, I can't ask my relationship with orthodoxy becomes increasingly fragile. I was wondering like what, what kind of questions did you have that you felt you couldn't ask or do you have, and do you feel you can ask? Well, them now? yeah, I think the, what used to be a fragile relationship with orthodoxy is now, uh, I don't care what you think relationship with orthodoxy. I don't, I no longer identify as orthodox and I no longer care what orthodoxy thinks of me. Um, I do have a rabbi that I can ask my halachic questions to or rabbi Sarah Mulhern is my rabbi. She officiated at our wedding and she's amazing. Um, She's very from and very egal and cares a lot about halacha and thinks that queer relationships are holy and Hashem loves them. Um, I think 
I think I just wanted, it wasn't really about specific questions. It was just about the, like the fact the, the having of the questions, the, that, that gay people in really queer people, not just gay people, but queer people within Orthodox community are not just an accident. It's if someone is queer and they're like still within orthodoxy, that is a very conscious choice. There are a lot of barriers that you have to face and overcome in order to like make that work. And how much more powerful would it be if you could ask a rabbi openly the, the questions of the barriers that you're facing and have them answer you in a way that expresses, it is important to, to me that you stay connected to Judaism. Just like when a straight person asks a question, what they're really saying is, I wanna stay connected to orthodoxy, help me navigate that. I would, I really want it to be possible for gay people, for queer people within Orthodox communities to be like, should I sit with my girlfriend when we come to shul? Like, I know that technically we're both women. So like technically, you know, we can sit next to each other, but like, what do you think, Rabbi? Do you think it's appropriate for us to sit together in shul? And it would be really meaningful mm -hmm. for a rabbi to give it some serious thought instead of being like, you're both women. It's fine. Sit, on, sit together to be like, let me give it some thought. Let me give you a real answer. I mean, every every queer couple I know who goes to a mechitza minion has their own way of dealing with that question. And I think for many of my friends, it's like a queer privilege to get to sit next to your partner in shul in a mechitza space. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it feels a little bit like a distraction. Like I was raised that like, this is not sit with your partner time. This is be by yourself or schmooze with your friends time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but like that's, it's not really about the questions themselves. It's just about the recognition that questions can come up and that they should be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, and you said that you have a place where you feel like you can ask those questions now, your rabbi. Um, first of all, that's incredible. Um, really, I, I don't know many people who have that, many queer people who have that in their lives. Um, could you just say a little bit about like what that relationship is like to have that relationship in, in Judaism? Um, I don't, I don't know because for, I, you're right. It is something wonderful, but I've never really stopped to recognize it as something unique and wonderful. So I, it feel, I guess it feels really safe. It feels really wonderful. I think it started with mm -hmm. the sessions that we had with her leading up to our wedding, where we were planning mm -hmm. what the ceremony was going to look like. And it was just really validating that she didn't just see us as like, okay, I support gay couples. How can we make this work? Like, how can we do halakha gay? She was just like, no, the framework of like how I think all people should get married is a framework that works for people of all genders. And that was really affirming. It was like, yes, we belong in Masora in the same way that everyone else belongs in Masora. And it's not like we're having a gay wedding. It's like, we're having a wedding and we're gay. Um, and that was, I think the beginning of, yeah, we are a Jewish family we can engage with Judaism and halacha in however way is meaningful for us. And she's always available if we want to text her or send her an email. It's just, mm -hmm. just like everybody else. It's very normal. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else that um, you'd like to add? Well, I just want to, I should have named this from the top. Like, I do want to recognize how incredibly privileged my experience has been. Like, I have heard some really horrible stories of people whose families are completely rejecting, people who've lost their kids because of their coming out, people who've lost everything in their lives. And 
I, I recognize and I own that like from a family perspective, from a communal perspective, from a, like a financial security perspective, like every step of the way I've been so, so very lucky. And I don't want people to think that I take that for granted. I very much mm-hmm. recognize that my story is not everybody's story. Um, and I like my heart is with the people who are really struggling and, and I don't want it to seem like I think that it could be this easy for everyone. Cause I understand that there are very real things that are barriers to people. And if you're not, if you're in a place, if you're listening right now and you're not in a place that you can come out, I don't want you to feel judged or feel guilty about that. You come out when you're good and ready and no one should yeah. force you to come out before you feel safe to do so. Well, I think one of the, one of the real goals of this project though is is to tell all of our stories. Um, and, you know, for every horrible, difficult um, narrative that somebody has to share, um, I think it's important to hear that, you know, there are positive stories and that we're not just a like- A Neva pile, yeah, Neva. we're not just a pile of Neva. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are people who are living their full authentic selves um, happily, so. Thank you very much for sharing that point. Pleasure. (laughs) That concludes today's episode. We want to thank Liana again for being so generous with her time and for sharing her story with us. You can find the blog post that we referenced at myjewishlearning.com. The full link will be included in the description. Liana has also been featured in a number of articles on jta.org. Links below. If you have a story that you'd like to share, or if there are any topics that you would like covered, please reach out to us by visiting queeryid.com.